This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. The Raggedy Rag from the Queen of Ragtime, Mimi Blay. Well, hello there. I'm Frank Proctor. I really appreciate you listening in tonight as we put the final hour of the show to bed. Now, uh, maybe some of you are already tucked in and listening with the radio beside you on the pillow. <laughs> Whatever the case, thank you for being there. Uh, here's a gal who lives in Lagoon City and has a great way with a song. Her name is Barbara Jordan. The song, St. Louis Blues. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce and the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his good friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And now it's time to keep the weekly appointment with our good friend, Dr. Watson. How are you this evening, Doctor? I never felt better, thank you, Mr. Bartell. Draw up your usual chair and make yourself comfortable. Thanks. That's it. Oh, I see you've had the old tin dispatch box out again. I suppose you've been going through your notes on tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure? Yes, Mr. Bartell, and I think you'll find it as pretty a little problem as we ever encountered. The story began in 1887. A very busy year for us, my boy. It was the same year that Holmes solved the case of the Amateur Mendicant Society, who held their meetings in a luxuriously furnished vault below a furniture warehouse. Oh, I remember that story, Doctor. And uh, wasn't 87 the year you both escaped from death in the Paradol Chamber? It was indeed. You've got a very good memory, Mr. Bartell. The story I'm going to tell you tonight topped off this unusually exciting year. It was late in October, and the equinoctial gales had set in with exceptional violence. All day the wind had howled and the rain had beaten against the windows of our Baker Street lodgings. Finally, it was nearly midnight, as far as I remember. The storm grew higher and louder, and the wind in the chimney sobbed like a child. Suddenly, much to our surprise, the doorbell jangled, and a few moments later, our midnight visitor stood before us. He was a man of about 45. And as he looked about him anxiously in the glare of the lamp, I could see that his face was pale and that his eyes heavy like those of a man who was weighed down with some great anxiety. And yet when he spoke, his tone was businesslike and almost aggressive. I've come to you for advice, Mr. Holmes. That's easily obtained. And help. That is not always so easy. Now help the gentleman off his coat, will you, Watson? Here you are, sir. Let me me hang it up for you. Thank you, sir. I heard of you, Mr. Holmes, from Major Prendergast. Oh, yes. He said that you could solve anything. I'm afraid he said too much. But you've never been beaten. I've been beaten four times, sir. Three times by men and once by a woman. But supposing you sit down and introduce yourself. Uh, my friend's name is Watson, Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? How do you do, Doctor? 
My name is Lovelace, Edmund Lovelace. And what brings you to me at this hour of the night, Mr. Lovelace? I'm in terrible trouble, Mr. Holmes. You don't know anything about me, but if you'll accept my case, you can save four lives. I wouldn't say that I know nothing about you, sir. Though it's true that I know little beyond the somewhat obvious fact that, uh, well, you're single, <clears throat> that you keep a dog, but not a manservant. And that you are much preoccupied with your business, which I take to be some form of insurance. Oh, come, come, come. Oh, steady. Now, what is this? Well, I, magic? I'll wager that my friend's right, though. Isn't he, Mr. Lovelace? Perfectly. But I'll be hanged if I can see how he knows. Oh, it's a practical application of logic, sir. The briefcase that you carry might at first indicate a barrister or some other professional man. But your brusque, business-like manner counteracts that suggestion. An insurance broker who must visit clients at odd hours is the likeliest man to combine that manner with a briefcase at midnight. But uh, the wife and the manservant, and the fact that I'm preoccupied with my business. Uh, your cufflinks don't match, sir. They each is from a different pair. That would suggest preoccupation, and it's a mistake that neither a wife nor a manservant would have allowed to pass. <laughs> yes, but how about the dog? Home? Oh, surely that's obvious, Watson. Well, I can't see it. I shall let you ponder on that matter while Mr. Lovelace tells us his problem. Mr. Holmes... Are you as interested in preventing a murder as in solving one? Well, naturally, I am, Mr. Lovelace. Even more so. But uh, uh, please tell me your story. I live with four cousins of mine in an old house in Camberwell. My grandfather left the house and a sizable fortune to the five of us on condition that we lived together and maintained the family unity. It probably won't surprise you to know that we've grown to get pretty much on each other's nerves. Well, what happens if one of you dies, Mr. Lovelace? His share is divided among the others, Doctor. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the wonder to me is, sir, that... Uh... Not that a murder may take place, but uh, that it has not happened long ago. Who's responsible for the administration of the estate? My cousin, Gerald. He's much older than the rest of us, and he's a thoroughly unpleasant, cantankerous man. Yeah. He gets an extra share in the estate as administrator, and in consequence, he doesn't work. We feel, of course, that he lives off us, and we're continually quarreling with him about it. Well, sounds mm. like a jolly household, I must say. There's going to be trouble, Mr. Holmes, I know it. Gerald hates us, and he's jealous of our share in the estate. You spoke of preventing murder just now. Uh, yet I can see that you've selected your cousin Gerald as the potential murderer. Am I right? Yes, you are. Mm -hmm. But don't think it's personal prejudice that makes me suspect him. I have good reason for doing so. Oh, uh, what reason? This evening, just before dinner, I helped Gerald off with his top coat and went to hang it up for him. As I did so, I heard a strange metallic clink in one of his pockets. I slipped my hand inside it and found a hypodermic syringe and a small pile of liquid. I opened the pile and smelled it. Gentlemen... It reeked of bitter almonds. Cyanide, eh? Now, what did you do? I thought of destroying it, but I realized that that would put him on his guard, so I replaced it in his pocket. Of course, I warned the others, and we decided that I'd come to you. I had to see a most important client tonight, or I'd have been here earlier. Yes, it seems odd that you didn't come directly to Mr. Holmes as soon as you'd made the discovery, Mr. Lovelace. After all, if a potential murderer is walking about with a pocket full of cyanide, I should have thought that, that in itself was a more important than business. Well, I... Uh... Yes, I, I suppose it might seem so to you, Doctor. Uh, that's the most interesting stick you carry, sir. May I examine it? Of course. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now I see how you deduced that Mr. Lovelace had a dog, Holmes. There are the marks of the dog's teeth on the stick. Yes, my dear Watson, but these marks under scrutiny give us even more specific information. He's a large dog. You've had him for some years, Mr. Lovelace, and he's now old and feeble. Well, you're perfectly right, but... I'll be hanged if I can see how you can tell that from looking at a walking stick. <laughs> this stick is covered with teeth marks, therefore it has been carried many times by the dog. Now it's uh, a heavy stick, so only a large dog could have carried it. And the teeth marks also indicate a large jaw. The older marks are deep sunk. Look here. The fresh ones 
where the wood is not yet darkened, are shallow. Yes, it's obvious that the jaws are losing their strength. That's very clever of you, Mr. Holmes, but I don't see what it has to do with the case in hand. Neither do I, Holmes, I must confess. No, surely it tells us that your story, Mr. Lovelace, may bear a less terrifying implication than you think. On the other hand, its implication may be even more terrifying... Oh, it's late at night. I feel that any further delay in this matter would be extremely dangerous. I suggest that we get a cab and come to your house in Camberwell at once. Alice, Randolph, I'm glad you're still up. I was able to persuade Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson to come back with me. Gentlemen, this is my cousin, Alice Harley. How do you do? How do you do, Miss Harley? How do you do? And my cousin, Randolph Lovelace. How do you do? How do you do, sir? How do you do, Mr. Lovelace? I've told him about the whole business, Randolph, so we can all speak perfectly freely. Let's begin by sitting down, shall we? Randolph and I have just finished a little cold supper. We've been to the theatre tonight. Well, Mr. Holmes, I... I suppose Edmund told you about finding the hypodermic syringe and the cyanide in Gerald's coat pocket. Yes, indeed. May I ask where your cousin, uh, Gerald Lovelace, is now? We left the house at seven, but... I imagine Gerald went upstairs at eight, as usual, didn't he, Edmund? On the stroke of eight, Alice. He's very fixed in his habits, Mr. Holmes. He goes up to his room every night at eight. There he reads or works on his accounts and eventually goes to bed any time between ten and one. But he might still be up. I should like to speak to him a little later. In the meanwhile, may I ask you two young people, tell me quite honestly your feelings about your cousin, Gerald? And you might as well be frank. I've kept nothing back. All right. Randolph and I hate him. First of all, we're sure he's jealous of our shares in the estate, and and then we... Alice and I want to get married, Mr. Holmes, and Gerald won't hear of it. But you're your cousins, aren't you? Only second cousins, Dr. Watson. Gerald is dreadfully conventional. He's threatened us that if we do get married, he'll go to court and try to have our shares in the estate annulled. And from the way the will is worded, I wouldn't be surprised if he could do it. So you can see why we have no great love for him, and why we're afraid of him. He sounds an extremely unpleasant person to me. You mentioned there were five cousins in the house. Three of you are here. Mr. Gerald Lovelace is upstairs. Who and uh, where is the fifth cousin? The fifth cousin is my brother, Gilly. He's something of a tragedy, I'm afraid. You see, Gilly's 20, but he he never developed mentally beyond the, the age of eight. He had a bad fall in the hunting field when he was a kid. He's been like this ever since. I'm sorry to hear that, sir. But he's the dearest, most gentle boy you've ever met. And, incidentally, the one person in this house who doesn't hate Gerald. Well, father doesn't understand the conditions of the will, I suppose. No. But if he did, I don't think it'd make any difference. I swear that Gilly loves every living thing, especially Gladstone. Gladstone is the name of his dog. His dog? Yes. The dog may be the key to this whole matter. Dog? What makes you say that, Holmes? When a man brings a quick and painless poison home to a household containing an old and feeble dog, it's more than possible that he has obtained that poison quite legitimately to give the dog a merciful death. To kill Gladstone? Oh, no! After all, Alice, dear, he is old and almost blind But, now. Mr. Holmes, if you think Gerald brought home the poison to put Gladstone out of the way, well, and I admit it sounds perfectly logical, what made you decide to come here tonight? Because I dare not even guess what you may have done by intruding the thought of murder in this situation. Uh, where is your brother, Gilly? In his room upstairs, asleep. I wonder if we might go up to him. I should like to talk to him, if you don't mind. And after that, I... I want a few words with your cousin, Gerald Lovelace.
He's asleep, Mr. Helms. Yes, with a dog in his arm. Hmm. I'm afraid we'll have to waken him. Gilly? Gilly? That's all right, Gladstone. We're not going to hurt him. Gilly? Hmm? Who, who, who is it? Oh, hello, Alice. Who, who are these men? They've come to take Gladstone away. No, oh, no, Gilly, we, we haven't. Oh, of course not, Gilly. We've just come to admire him. Your brother's been telling us what a fine dog he is. Oh, that's different. He, isn't he beautiful? I, I just had such a wonderful dream about him. Oh, such a wonderful dream. What was it, Gilly? He, he was all young again. Just a puppy. He, he was chasing a rabbit across a cliff top. And, and, and I was running with him. Oh, Glaston looked so beautiful. Didn't you, old boy? Of course you did. And, and you know, the rabbit went down a hole and, and Gladston went down after him. And I went down after Gladston. And, and we all had tea with the rabbits. Oh, it was so funny. They all had little green hats on. Hats with, with feathers. I wanted Gladstone to try one on, but he wouldn't. <laughs> so sleepy. Come on, Gladstone. Let's go back to the tea party. Okay. Mm. This world may be a great deal more pleasant than ours, Watson. That's what I'd like to think, Mr. Holmes. Now I'd like to have a few words with your cousin Gerald. His room's at the end of this corridor. I'm afraid Gilly wasn't much help to you, Mr. Holmes. On the contrary, young lady. He told me exactly what I wanted to know. Here we are. This is Gerald's room. There's no light under the door. He must have gone to sleep. I'm afraid we must waken him, too. Hmm. Must be a heavy sleeper. But he isn't. He's a remarkably light one. Come on, let's go in. Strike a match, will you, old fellow? Sure. The gas mantle's at the head of his bed, Dr. Watson. Yeah. Well, he's lying on the outside of his bed. He must be... There's blood on the pillow. Great Scott Holmes, the back of his skull smashed in. He's been murdered. <gasps> oh, no! Horrible! Yes, Watson, but not by the blows on his head. Look here on the table by his bed. A hypodermic syringe and a broken file. Yes, a broken file. Reeking of bitter almonds. Poor devil. Well, I won't pretend I like him. But what a ghastly way to die. All they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. So the scriptures say, Mr. Lovelace. The very suspicion of the killing has brought murder to pass. Well, it's too late to prevent it. Our job now is to find the killer and see that he's brought to justice. Well, Dr. Watson, so you found Gerald Lovelace dead in one of the bedrooms of the house in Camberwell... Uh, what did you do? Send for the police? Not at once, Mr. Bartell. Sherlock Holmes persuaded the remainder of the household to give him the opportunity of examining the scene of the crime carefully before the police were sent for. And so, a few minutes before one o'clock that October night, Holmes and I stood alone in the room of death. Gas a little higher, will you, old chap? You know, Holmes, I think you should have sent for the police right away. In a case like this, Watson, I prefer to be my own police. And I have spun the web... They may take the flies, but not before. What are the results of your medical examination, old chap? Well, it's exactly as you reconstructed it, Holmes. He was first beaten on the head with that poker lying on the floor. Then he had the full file of cyanide injected 
into his left wrist. Can you estimate the time of death at all accurately? No, this room's confoundedly hot. He might have died any time from one to five hours ago. Yes. It's now one o'clock, and we know that he was alive at eight. Mr. Edmund Lovelace saw him leave for his room at that hour. Yes, if he was telling the truth. One thing we do know for a fact is that this man was murdered at the exact moment he was going to bed. He's wearing his nightgown and nightcap, but his bed has not been slept in. Well, isn't it possible the murderer might have killed him shortly after eight and then dressed him in his nightclothes to confuse us? No, my dear chap. You will notice that the hypodermic needle passed through the sleeve of his nightshirt. Yeah. Also, the nightcap is crushed and bloodstained from the blows of the poker. No, Gerald Lovelace had prepared for bed. Yes. With a glass of water on the night table and the, the prayer book and the watch. Yes. Signs of a prosperous and meticulous man. Mm-hmm. Very fine gold watch and in excellent condition. Ah. There's the answer, Watson. What do you mean, there's the answer, Watson? I just wound this watch one turn and then it was fully wound. That provides us with a time schedule for our murder. Come on. We'll send a servant to the police, and while they're on the way, if you'll call everyone together, I should like to put a few more questions to this family. Before the police arrive, I should like to hear your statements again very carefully, if you don't mind. Mr. Edmund Lovelace... What were your exact movements tonight? I left here shortly before ten. From ten o'clock until the time I came to Baker Street, I was with my client. His name and address, please. Derek Waterlow, 39 Onslow Square, South Kensington. Thank you. Make a note of these, will you, Watson? At your home. You, Miss Harley, and you, Mr. Randolph Lovelace, went to the theatre together. Can any independent witness testify as to your movements? Yes, Mr. Holmes. We went with friends, the Grant Moresby's. They live at the Clarendon Hotel loft, Charing Cross. What time did you leave this house? Well, it, it was about a quarter to eight, wasn't it, Alice? Yes. And after the play, we went to the Café Royale for a little refreshment with our friends and then came back here. I see. And what time did you arrive back at this house? Just a few minutes before midnight. I remember the grandfather clock in the hall striking just as we went into the drawing room. And your brother, Gilly, sir. I hate to waken him again. Have you any idea of his movements tonight? Well, he never goes out after dark, Mr. Moore. Mm-hmm. But I spoke to the cook as we came in tonight. She says that he played cards with her until just after ten o'clock. He was fast asleep when I looked in on him shortly after midnight. Thank you. You've made a note of all these facts, Watson? Yes, Holmes. I've got them all down. Good. Then let's be on our way to Baker Street. But the police, Mr. Holmes, they're on their way. I know. Uh, please give them my regards, will you? Apologize for my informality and tell them that I shall have the answer to this matter probably in a little over 24 hours. <laughs> Here it is, well after midnight. You haven't done a thing on the Camberwell case. No, but you have, old chap. You've checked on all the time alibis and found them valid. I'm much obliged to you. Inspector Lestrade was here tonight, you know, and he made some pretty caustic remarks, I can tell you. Oh, didn't you inform him that I'll uh, have the answer to the problem before many hours have passed? Uh, But you know, Lestrade, he wanted action. (laughs) He shall have it. Is the watch... Still running. Yes, another thing. What will Lestrade say when he finds that you took the dead man's watch? I've no idea. Oh, why did you take it anywhere? You sound sleepy, old chap. I'm confoundedly sleepy. Well, why don't you go to bed? What are you going to do? Continue my vigil with my pipe and the watch of a dead man. <laughs> 
Watson, Watson, wake up. Uh, Five o'clock in the morning. Good Lord, what are you doing up at this hour? The watch has just stopped. I'm about to rewind it. What are you rewinding it for, Holmes? You waited over 24 hours for it to unwind. When I know how many turns it takes to wind it fully, I shall have the answer to the whole business. Ten, eleven... You're being confoundedly mysterious, as usual. Fourteen. Fourteen turns, and the watch is fully wound. Get your clothes on, old chap. Where are we going on this hour? To the house in Camberwell. Now I know who murdered Gerald Lovelace. Edmund Lovelace, I'm glad you let us in. Please take us up to your young cousin's room at once. Really? What do you want with him? I'll explain in a moment. Please take us up to him. Of course, but what brings you here at this hour of the morning? Mr. Holmes knows who murdered your cousin. I'm glad to hear it. It's more than the police seem to know. They were here half the night cross-examining us. Here we are. I don't think we'll bother to knock. Billy. Billy? I'm awake. We heard you coming up the stairs, didn't we, Gladstone? It's the same man again. You're not going to take Gladstone away, are you? Please don't take him oh, away. Don't worry, Gilly. We're not going to touch him. Oh, it's all right, then. Oh, Gilly. Yes? You really love that dog, don't you? Of course I do. More than anything or, or anybody. I believe you'd even kill a man who tried to hurt Gladstone, wouldn't you? Oh, yes, sir. I would. Gilly! Shut up. Gilly, I don't think you'd really kill a man. I don't think you could. <laughs> Couldn't I, though? How would you kill him? I'd hit him first. I'd take a poker and hit him on the head so he couldn't fight back. And then I'd take the nasty needle he told me he was going to stick in Gladstone, and, and, and I'd fill it full of that water he showed me, and I'd stick it in him. That's what I'd do. Then he'd be dead. And, and he couldn't hurt my Gladstone anymore. Not ever. <laughs> Let's leave him, shall we? Goodbye, Gilly. Pleasant dreams. Goodbye, sir. Good old Gladstone. You satisfied, sir? Yes. Poor Gilly. There's no doubt about it, of course. Well, can there be no one who described the murder to him, and yet he's just given a... An exact description of its method. Well, well, uh, what'll happen to him? They they won't try him. No, 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 no. A little pressure in the right places and he'll be released to a private nursing home. I'll do everything I can, Mr. Lovelace. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. Thank you very much. Well, Holmes, now that we're back in Baker Street and the whole pressing case is finished with... Perhaps you'll tell me how you knew that Gilly had committed the murder. Well, consider the time schedules, old fellow. You checked the alibis of the other cousins and found them satisfactory. That meant that um, Alice Harley and uh, Randolph Lovelace could have committed the crime only at midnight. Edmund, only before ten. Gilly, only around eleven. You said that the uh, time of death could have been at any of those hours. Yes, I did. So how did you pin it down to, uh, to 11? The watch gave me the specific answer. When I picked it up, I unthink unthinkingly wound it. Made one turn and was then fully wound. Now, when does a methodical, precise man like Gerald Lovelace wind his watch? Just he's going to bed. Exactly, old fellow. 
so that it was obvious that he was killed precisely one watch stem turn before I wound his watch. Now I'm beginning to see daylight, Holmes. So you let the watch run down. That's what I did. It took uh, 28 hours from 1 o'clock the night before last until 5 this morning. Now, how many turns did it take to rewind it? 14, wasn't it? That's right. Therefore, one turn of the watch stem equaled two hours, proving that Gerald Lovelace had been murdered two hours before one o'clock at 11 p.m. When Gilly was the only one who could have done it. You know, Holmes, I still find it hard to believe that boy was capable of such a ghastly crime. He seemed so gentle. Oh, years, years. Except when his beloved dog's life was at stake, probably out of some mistaken notion of kindness... Gerald Lovelace warned the boy of his intentions regarding the dog. Oh, it's a sad business, Watson, a sad business. I hate to think of that boy spending the rest of his life in a mental home. I have one prayer for his future. What's that, Holm? <clears throat> the dog Gladstone can't live very long. I pray that Gilly does not long outlive him. Doctor, that was a remarkable bit of deduction on the part of Mr. Holmes. Yes, extremely clever, wasn't it? Of course, if I may say so, I was of some small help myself. Small help? Why, Doctor, you practically solved the case by yourself. Oh, I wouldn't go as far as saying that. But, Doctor, you did check all the alibis, didn't you? Yes, I checked where each suspect was at various times. Yes, you checked time. And what's more important than time? Well, Why, uh, Dr. Time is even vitally important when it comes to wine. I was wondering how you were going to bring that in. And one thing we do know, Petri took time to bring you good wine. So nobody can miss with Petri wine. It's just got to be good. You know, you can't be in the wine business as long as the Petri family without really learning all about the fine art of making wine. And don't forget, the Petri family has been making fine wine since way back in the 1800s. So, naturally, they've been able to hand on down from father to son, from father to son, the result of generations of experience at turning luscious, sun-ripened grapes into fragrant, delicious wine. No matter what type of wine you prefer, you'll like it more if it's a Petri wine, because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes story do you plan to tell us next week? Well, now, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a most unusual adventure that Holmes and I had when we were attending a performance at the Opera House in Rome. It concerns a famous singer who lost her voice, an understudy who was nearly lynched, and a murder that baffled the police. I call it the adventure of the terrifying cat. Well, that's a story we've got to hear. Thank you, Mr. Bartell. And before you go, I want to talk to our friends about their war bonds. You know, during the war, the best investment we could find was the United States war bond. And for my money, they're still a great investment. They're called United States savings bonds now, and only the name is changed. Savings bonds are sold in the same denominations and give you all the same advantages. And you can buy savings bonds at the same places at your bank or your post office or through the payroll savings plan. So invest all you can in United States savings bonds, because you cannot find a better or a safer investment. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher 
and was suggested by an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Five Orange Pips. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Listen every Monday on most of these same stations at 8 o'clock to Michael Shane, followed immediately by Sherlock Holmes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for Life with Luigi, next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Life with Luigi. The makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum invite you to enjoy life, Life with Luigi, a comedy show created by Cy Howard, directed by Mac Benoff, and starring that celebrated actor, Mr. J. Carroll Nash, with Alan Reed as Pasquale. Friends, the makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum are glad to bring you Life with Luigi because they feel it's a friendly, good-natured show that offers you relaxation and enjoyment. And you know, Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum offers you relaxation and enjoyment, too. It's pleasant to chew on a smooth piece of Wrigley's Spearmint whether you're working, shopping, listening to your radio, or doing just about anything. Wrigley's Spearmint Gum tastes good, it's refreshing... And the good, easy chewing gives you comfort and satisfaction. So chew Wrigley's Spearmint Gum often, every day. Millions enjoy it, and you will too. Now, Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum brings you Luigi as he writes another letter describing his adventures in America to his mama Basco in Italy. There's the one thing I'm crazy about, and that's the holidays in America. There's the one noisy holiday here, Mamma Mia, at the 4th of July, which is celebrate America's independence from England. That's right, Mamma Mia. England is a once owned America, but she's not going to keep up with the payments. <laughs> right now is a double holiday, Easter and Rosh's birthday. Who want to know bigger secret, Mamma Mia? I'm going to save up $40 since January. And this Sunday, I'm going to make a big Easter dinner and invite all of my school friends. And a Pasquale and a Rosa. You see, this dinner is also going to be a surprise party for us. And don't ask me, Mamma Mia, how old she is. When I'm asking Pasquale, he says she's almost 30. But when I'm looking around her middle, I think she's almost 60. <laughs> And I'm going to buy Rosa a beautiful birthday present to, to surprise her. And, and with the rest of the money, I'm going to buy enough for food for everybody so they should have bought that. But right now, Mama Mia, I'm going to my night to school and invite all of my friends to my Easter dinner. I'm going to hardly wait to tell them. <laughs> Oh, 
thought I'd show nobody about it. Quiet, Clive. Down for all the road. Mr. Basco. I'm a hitter. Mr. Howard. Yeah. Mr. Olson. Mr. Schultz. Hippity hop, hippity hop, hippity hop. Mr. Schultz, stop that. Oh, thank you, Miss Pauling. At my age, I'm getting too hippie to hop. How about smile, fellow boobers? Let's see that Easter spirit. Hey, uh, for the friends, uh, before I forget, uh, I want everybody to know you all invited for my big Easter dinner, and uh, this is Sunday. Oh, how nice. Oh, Luigi, that's nice, but won't it be too much trouble for you? Joho, after all, Luigi, you have no wife to cook. Don't you? worry, friends. I- I'm going to cook myself. Him, Luigi's going to dive into the pressure cooker and set himself for 30 minutes. <laughs> Don't be so impulsive with that dinner, Luigi. Making a meal for a lot of people is no zinch. How well, I don't know what I'm about. I'm, 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 I'm wonderful at cooking, Schultz. And I'm saved up for so much money. Nobody's got to eat for two days before the dinner. Well, thank you, Mr. Basco. At this time, however, I think we should begin the lesson. <clears throat> Class, today I'm going to review some of the more troublesome grammar rules. Mr. Horowitz, you may tell us the plural of calves. Calves. In the plural... The F changes to B-E-S. Good. Uh, Mr. Basco, the plural of jacket. Jackets. Mr. Schultz, the word pants. Pants? Yes. Is it singular or plural? But both. It's singular on top and plural on bottom. <laughs> I love those old jokes. <laughs> Mr. Olson, you may tell him the answer. I will be happy to. The word pants is always plural. Then how about the word trousers? That's always plural, too. Himmel, I can't buy a suit with one pair of pants in this place. <laughs> All right, Mr. Schultz. Mr. Olson, that was very good. Now, let us go on to verbs. Mr. Basco, you may name the two types of verbs. What is it? Active and passive. Mr. Horowitz, define them. With pleasure. An active verb shows action. A passive verb shows passion. <laughs> Mr. Horowitz, where did you learn that? Yeah, and where can we get a hold of that book? <laughs> please, please. Now, will somebody tell us the difference between an active verb and a passive verb? Mr. Schultz. All right. The active verb ain't passive, and the passive verb ain't active. I'm in no mood for jokes. I'll give you a zero for that answer. Well, I'm in no mood for bargaining. I'll take it. <laughs> Mr. Olson, you tell him. To be sure. The active verb denotes the subject as acting. The passive verb denotes the subject as acted upon. Correct. Now, Mr. Basco, give a sentence. <laughs> would you give a sentence illustrating each type of verb? All right. Sentence with the active verb. Come and now and invite the whole class to my Easter party this Sunday. And please don't bring nothing because I'm going to supply all the food. There's going to be plenty of wine, the potatoes, the milk, the pies, the... Please come at six o'clock a shop or six o'clock a shop a thank thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Is that one sentence, Mr. Basco? Find Sean Hancock on the bottom and you've got the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> oh, smile, Miss Sparling. He really wants us for his Easter dinner, can't you see? Well Now please come, Miss Sparling, because besides the being Easter party is it's also going to be big surprise party for us. Well, I'd like to. Uh, Sunday, did you say? Yeah, please come, Miss Miss Pauling. I'm, I'm a server for forty dollars to make sure there's going to be enough for food for everybody. Now, how could anybody afford them, Miss Pauling? He's like the like the Marshall Plan, looking for countries. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, sure. I'll be glad to come. Good. Well, I got my girl. Now you fellas pick your own. <laughs> Mr. Schultz. And that's what I said. I'm going to buy turkey and, and, and a lot of the crumbs that'll be... Crumbs are better. That's the sauce. Crumbs. Oh, wonderful, because last Thanksgiving, you know, the cranberry sauce was so delicious. The turkey ate it up before we did. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy, friends. We're going to have a wonderful time. Mr. Basco, does Mr. Pasquale know you're making this surprise party for Rosa? Oh, no, no. And please, please, don't but nobody tell him. After school, I'm going to invite, the, invite the him and Rosa to the party. Luigi, how much money did you say he was going to spend on food? Well, I'm going to get a $40 and a for Rosa as a present and a, and as a 30 for the food. Uh-uh. Isn't that going to be enough for Schultz? For six normal people, that's plenty. But with Rosa's appetite included, bring your own sandwiches, kids. <laughs> Rosa, stop eating and pay attention. All right, Papa. Now, look, baby, I don't want you should invite anybody to your birthday party. It's just a full of widgets. You mean I can't come, Papa? Oh, stop. I mean, Luigi's going to be the only guest. Oh. And can you guess why Luigi's going to be the only one invited to my daughter? Sure. Then there'll be more cake for us. Yeah. No. <laughs> and don't do what you did the last year's a birthday cake when you ate up all the candles. <laughs> Look, Bambina, I want you to dress up a special and nice for your party, eh? Wear that black, shiny dress that makes you look as skinny, eh? Oh, Papa, can I wear my Mexican skirt? That makes me look skinny, don't it? Makes you look like a Mexico. <laughs> what a nice, a romantic party it's going to be, just the three of us. And after a while, I'm going to tip a toe out and go to the movies. Oh! What's the matter? What are you bellyaching about? I want to see the picture, too. <laughs> Look, go on and hide. Luigi's a cup and go in the kitchen before you spoil everything. All right, Papa. <laughs> Hello, Hello, little pumpkin head. <laughs> How was the school today? Oh, it was pretty good. Hey, your heads are getting bigger. Huh? Luigi, I bet your brain must have gained 10 or 12 pounds uh -huh. since you started pushing education inside. No, but I'm scary. I'm a chemist to invite you to big Easter dinner that I'm giving this Sunday. Huh? Luigi, that's a funny thing, but I was going to invite you to a party this Sunday. You? What the? Who else are you invited, Pasquale? Just to you. Pasquale, what do you talk about? No, you gotta come to my party. I'm invited lots of people. I don't care. You gotta come to mine. No, Pasquale, the whole thing is crazy. Hey, you gotta come to my party. No, you must come to my party. No, wait a minute, Pasquale, because I'm already invited all of my school friends in Miss Spalding, too, and we're gonna have a big Easter dinner all together. Big dinner with everybody. I wanted just the three of us. Yeah, but are you gonna be there, Pasquale? Well, in fact, I'm a... Hey, look, I'm... I'm saved for three months for this party, Pascal, and I'm, and I'm gonna get $40 in cash. I don't see? care if you, uh, $40, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let me see the money. Yeah, sure, here. Look, here. Uh, let me hold them, eh? <laughs> That's all right, $40. Well, thanks, Luigi. This pays for last December's rent. Oh, no, 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 Pascal, you can't. Uh, no, no. Pasquale, I'm a promise to pay you everything I'm owed. Sorry, you Luigi, I'm, a... I'm a sorry. In the landlords' union, we got a very strict rule: the uh, NTG. NTG, what's that? No trust for greenhorns. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Pasquale, how am I going to pay for my Easter dinner? What 
what am, what am I going to tell all of my friends? Tell them whatever you want to tell them. Tell them you're not a Democrat or a Republican. Are you a man or without a party? <laughs> Before we return to Life with Luigi, here's a suggestion that'll make your daily activities more pleasant and enjoyable. Carry a package of delicious Wrigley Spearmint Gum with you. Chew a stick from time to time. It's really good to get your teeth into a smooth piece of Wrigley Spearmint. The lively Spearmint flavor freshens your mouth and gives you extra enjoyment and satisfaction. It makes whatever you're doing more enjoyable. So when you start out your day... Tuck a package of Wrigley Spearmint chewing gum in your purse or pocket. Be set to enjoy a stick of Wrigley Spearmint any time and any place. Get a few packages of refreshing, delicious Wrigley Spearmint chewing gum. Now let's turn to page two of Luigi Basco's letter to his mother in Italy. Well, Mamma Mia, Pasquale, you took away my forty dollars, and, and I'm not gonna make it a big Easter dinner for my friends. I'm, I'm so mad at Pasquale. I'm gonna tell him what is it for, and I'm, I'm gonna feel it terribly. First time I thought that maybe I'm gonna telephone to my friends and stop everything, but, but then I'm gonna thought I'm, I'm have a better idea. I'm gonna get all of the food on the credit. I'm gonna go to Astro's the fruit store first. Uh, you mind if I'm getting some fruit from you? On a credit? For you, Luigi, anytime. Here, have an apple. Uh, apple? Uh, well, uh, now I'm like to make up the order. Order? Oh, okay, what is it? Well, I'm like a ten of pound apples, uh, fifteen of pound of grapes, uh, eight of pound of pears, six dozen of bananas, uh, and, and a twelve of pound of nuts. Hey, what are you doing, Luigi? Making a thousand picture? <laughs> I don't mind giving you credit on fruit if you're hungry, but when you start throwing parties for the zoo. Oh, Astrom. <laughs> I'm not making a party for the zoo, Astrom. I'm, uh, I'm making a bigger party for, for my friends. I'm sorry, Luigi. For parties, I got no credit. After all, I'm running this fruit market for profits. You think bananas and oranges and apples grow on trees? <laughs> Thank you, Astra. Don't mention it. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Warner. How's it the butcher business? Oh, pretty good, Basco. What can we do for you today? Well, uh, Mr. Warner, I'm, I'm making a big Easter dinner tomorrow, and I'm going to ah, get... I've got just the thing, Basco. A 20-pound turkey, fit for a king. Isn't that nice? That's a beautiful... <laughs> I'll go ahead and charge it. Oh, I'm sorry, Basco. That's against company rules. But if you're short on cash, I'll be glad to okay your check. That's no good. My check is short on the cash, too. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Basco. I'm more sorry than you. Well, is it no use? I'm gonna call off for the party. But I'm not gonna never to call him up. I'm, I'm, 
اما تو شمله اما گارش که در نزد پارک بنشه سکیزمه میستر ها من اف اما شده در نزد تو بی مای گس Would you like a daisy friend to help you make up your mind? Excuse me, I'm I'm talking to myself. You ever talk to yourself? Oh, brother, don't remind me. What's your trouble? Drink? Uh huh. How do you know? I could tell. We're the same type. Soft inside. No willpower. Well, tell me about it. Well, it's, it's not only drinks, but it's also food and a fruit. Huh? Yeah, and a birthday cake and a present and a no nuts. What? <laughs> Look, friend, maybe you better talk to yourself. No, please, please, help me. I'm always a save up of my money for a party for my friends, but but then somebody's to take it away. I'm got nothing to feed them, and I'm ashamed to call them up and tell them about it. Did you say they was your friends? Uh huh. Then your problem is solved. What? Because a friend is a friend. Blue, blue to the end. <laughs> food or no food? I know. Because I had a friend. My mother. <laughs> She never fed me, never gave me no food. But still, I was her friend. At the watch of you, 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 Mamma Mia. That's right. Mother, wherever you are, I want you to know we're still friends. I ain't changed at all. I'm still hungry. Go, friend, go. Give your party. Invite your friends. Say nothing. And they'll enjoy themselves with friendship. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You're making me feel good all over. And I'm going to back it out to my antique shop, fix it up nice and mm-hmm. pretty. And then, uh, goodbye, give my regards to you, Mom. Thanks, friend. Oh. Hey, look, uh, maybe you want to come to my party, too? Are you kidding? You ain't got nothing to eat. <laughs> There's no food. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised, Schultz. Now, now, don't say anything. He feels terrible enough. She's coming out of the kitchen. Uh, all right, everybody. <laughs> Since this is the party, it's Luigi's idea. I propose a toast to the host. Yeah. May he find in America happiness, health, and wealth. Minus 20% for the government. I'm in click, Luigi. Thank you, friends. You are so wonderful. I'm... Mama, what a proposal toast. Luigi, I don't mind all this toasting, but ain't the champagne a little weak? <laughs> well, well, it's just, it's not the champagne, it's the... It's the <laughs> What's the difference? You're sure seltzer or champagne. <laughs> yeah, after all, what's seltzer if not champagne that's given blood? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny, Yes, that's really funny. 
Anything? <laughs> Why don't we all sing a song? Oh, you're, that's a wonderful idea. All right, what song should we sing? Yeah, how about Turkey in the Straw? <laughs> right now, I'll settle for a weenie in a bun. <laughs> Please, Mr. Schultz. Uh, how about shrimp boats are coming? Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Basso. Uh, that's all right, Miss Hey, Even I was thinking about the who's the throw the overalls in the missus of Murphy's soup, but then... Rosa, today we teach Luigi a big lesson. His friends came for a feast, and they're going to have a fast. <laughs> Papa, everybody's singing over there. You think Luigi got food someplace? Uh, this I better investigate. Watch the restaurant, Rosa. Stubborn little cabbage puss. Gives me nothing but a trouble and a headache. Since I imported him from Italy, my life is just a one of big aspirin. <laughs> uh, Luigi's putting up his hand like he's going to make a big speech. I better open up the door a little uh, Francis, isn't I used to pretend that we all are having a lot of fun? I'm, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to make a confession. Never mind the confession. Bring on the food. <laughs> After the trouble of shows, I'm, I'm not got enough food. <laughs> Luigi, you're joking, huh? <laughs> That's Luigi. He's pulling our leg. <laughs> the way I feel now, if he pulled my leg, my stomach would drop out. <laughs> Oh, he's a suffering good. Mr. Basco, what happened to the $40 you had? Pasquale is a tucker for the rent money. Oh, the oh, rent money. tell us. No, no, please, please. I'm, 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 I don't want to talk about it. But... Mr. Basco, didn't you tell Mr. Pasquale that this party was to be a surprise birthday celebration for his daughter? What? Well, I know, Miss Pudding. He's, well, he's, he's hurt to me so much, I'm, I don't even want to tell him. Huh? Now I'm got no food and no birthday cake for us and no present. Oh, I could kill that Pascoli. <laughs> What's he talking about? I could have killed myself. Oh, I'm the stupidest thing that ever lived. I'm a mean, terrible, rotten, stupid. Right now, if I was a twins, I'd have stopped talking to myself for good. <laughs> what am I going to do? i got to make it up with the Luigi. Uh, I, I know. Rosa! Yes, Papa! Put on your apron and get in the kitchen. Are we going to cook them a dinner that would sink to the Queen Mary? But Papa, Don't what? ask her no questions just to warm up at the oven. I've got to make a food for Luigi's. You're going to have enough for a hundred years. Stop looking so depressed. Sure, so what if he don't eat? Your food isn't so important. And besides, we, we, we're not too hungry. Or we should. I'm too weak to answer. <laughs> Luigi, everybody, listen, I got a great big idea. Instead of one big Easter party, we're going to have three or four little ones in a row. Four little ones in a row, what do you mean? Well, we'll have like a round robin. In my house, we eat appetizer. I know what you mean, Horowitz. That's a wonderful idea. Appetizer in your house, the entree in my house. Dessert in my house. In my house, by carbonate of soda. <laughs> How am I going to thank you for such a wonderful idea? Luigi, I'm the happiest man in the world I thought of it. Go ahead, eat, eat. Yeah, but this is a, that's a delicious. What do you call it? It's called a four spice. Chopped liver. 
It's very tasty, Mr. Horowitz. What is your wife's recipe? Sorry, Miss Folding. That's an international secret. <laughs> Oh, sorry, I'll pour the meatballs while I fix these pies. Turn up the flame. They must be starving in Luigi's stall by now. All right, Papa. And Rosa, don't eat anything. Oh. Yeah, I bet if they saw these meatballs, they'd go crazy. Papa, what do you think's happening to me? Mr. Schultz, this turkey is wonderful. Oh, they were superb. A gourmet's delight. Very good, Schultz. Very good. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm ate it so much, I think I'm going to bust it. So what's a happy explosion between friends? How's <laughs> <laughs> the spaghetti, Rosa? Almost a cup. Almost, Papa. Mm, this lasagna is going to give them an Easter dinner they're never going to forget. Rosa, stop looking that way at the pizza. But, Papa, I'm starving, Starving. Rosa, listen, right next door is a five starving of people waiting for all this food, and we owe Luigi a lot for the wrong we did to him. Besides, Rosa, why you keep looking at me so funny? I can't help it, Papa. I'm so hungry, you look to me like one big meatball. <laughs> Friends, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm so full up with the tank. So full of food. Ach, Miss Spalding, you make it wonderful coffee. <laughs> well, I did the least. Mr. Olsen, this dessert tastes just heavenly. <laughs> How did this boil? Olsen, what do you call it? It looks like the pancakes. In Sweden, we call it plaster. Uh, back home, many families eat it, especially on Thursdays, with pea soup. Oh, with a piece of Hannah, this is so, so, so that's a delicious. So what do you call that, sir? Uh, there was lingonberries. In Sweden, we use it just like apple sauce. Go on, old you keep on talking. I feel like I'm eating a dessert with a travel on. <laughs> you know, friends, I'm so full now, I feel like I ate into 1953. Yeah, me too. If anybody mentioned food to me now, I think I would float away. Yeah. <laughs> well, enough, Brenda, please. Uh, maybe, maybe we all go back to my antique shop and, and we just uh, sit back and uh, relax and, and maybe just to talk, huh? It's a good idea, Luigi. Let's go. Schultz, get up. But impossible. I think the automobile club will have to tow me to Luigi's store. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it just so nice to sit down here and rest, huh? Oh, sure. Oh, oh, he enjoyed a feast hit for a king, by golly. Yeah, this is one Easter I'll never forget. That food. No, please, don't mention food. It gives my stomach a headache. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly... Come on in, Rosa. Don't drop the pot. All right, stop sitting around, everybody. Happy Easter. Look at what I got. Food. Oh. That's the matter. You all died from starvation. <laughs> oh, Spani, please, go away. Oh. <laughs> Look, everybody. It's all free. And the house. Gratis. 
Plenty of spaghetti, meatballs, a pizza. No, 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 Pascari, Pascari, you know, you know, we was all in Manhattan, and then we was eating at, in each other's houses. Yeah, we had a door-to-door feed. What? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah, go away, Pasquale, and take everything with you. you. Well, it's a serve of me right. I deserve everything. Well, Pasquale, tell the truth. The only thing I'm, I'm a feel bad about the now is that I didn't get a rush of birthday present. If I'm ahead of my Rosa, I would have given you anything you wanted. Hey, you ain't at the Rosa anything. And what do you want? A can't be bought with the money, eh? You're right, Papa. Luigi, can I have anything I want? Anything, Rosa. Damn back, everybody. All this food belongs to me. <laughs> Wonderful feast this Easter, and after all, even Russians have got a big birthday present. Seven and a half pounds to be exact. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't a hurry to have wonderful idea, Mamma Mia. What is it called, Round the Robin? And Mamma Mia, when you get this letter, make yourself a little guest glass of coffee, because I'm going to have some cake, and we're going to have our own Round the Robin together. You love the son, Luigi Basca, and then my granddaughter. Life with Luigi is a Cy Howard production. Pat Burton is associate producer. The script is written by Mac Benoff and Lou Derman and directed by Mr. Benoff. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's the program that frightened a whole nation. Orson Welles Mercury Theater's War of the Worlds. Part 1 and Part 2. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. Stay tuned for Ziggy and Stardust next on Zuma Radio. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.